Hi, it's Chris Flanagan. Welcome to the Paediatric Emergencies Podcast. I'm currently in the process of writing a course manual for the Paediatric Emergencies Intubation course. Um, for each of the chapters, I'm trying to have a talk um, summarising the chapter. So this is the one for the Intubation Pharmacology chapter. Um, you can find the written text on the Paediatric Emergencies website, so that's paediatricemergencies.com. And I've created a separate tab at the top for um, the Paediatric Emergencies Intubation course. So as always, get in touch if you have any comments or queries. And you can expect a few more podcasts on topics related to paediatric intubation over the coming weeks and months. So there's three groups of medications you need when you're going to intubate a child. There's an induction agent, a muscle relaxant and rescue medications. So the induction agent is what causes unconsciousness in the child. Um, firstly, so they're not aware of what's being done and they're comfortable. And the second thing it does is it blunts the sympathetic response caused by the stimulus of laryngoscopy. And this sympathetic response can actually be harmful in certain circumstances um, because it causes tachycardia, hypertension, increased afterload and increased oxygen requirement on the heart and certain groups of children may tolerate this particularly badly. The muscle relaxant is what actually lets you do the intubation. So it causes the muscle tone to relax and abolishes the protective airway reflexes, allowing you to put a laryngoscope into the back of the throat and get a view of the airway. It also causes the vocal cords to relax in the open position and allows you to pass an endotracheal tube. So you could intubate a patient with just the muscle relaxant. It's the drug that lets you do the intubation, but the patient would be fully awake and aware. So that's why you need a combination of the induction agent and the muscle relaxant. Um, and the process of intubation um, is highly likely to cause hypoxia and bradycardia when you're dealing with sick children. So you need to have some rescue medications prepared to deal with these predictable complications. So in this talk I'm going to look at the induction agents, the muscle relaxants and the rescue medications and go through them in some detail and as well I'm going to talk a little bit about the post-intubation drugs as well. So I'm going to get started with the induction agents and there's a wide variety of induction agents that are routinely used in children and it's important that you know a little bit about their pharmacology so that you know their mechanism of action, their individual advantages and disadvantages, um, common side effects and contraindications, so that you can pick the best induction agent for your child in whatever situation you find yourself in. Um, so I'm going to start off with three of the most common induction agents, um, ketamine, propofol and thiopentone, um, and look at their individual properties in a bit more detail. So um, looking at ketamine first of all, so ketamine is a phenylcycladine uh, derivative that is an antagonist of the NMDA receptors and it causes um, dissociative anaesthesia um, having hypnotic, analgesic and also local anaesthetic properties. Um, it comes in a clear colour solution um, in 10 milligrams per mil, 50 milligrams per mil and 100 milligram per mil ampules and is stable at room temperature. The normal intubating dose is one to two milligrams per kilogram in a hemodynamically stable patient. 
And as I'm going to mention with all the induction agents, the dose should be titrated to the patient's hemodynamic state. And hemodynamically unstable patients will require significantly less than the one to two milligrams per kilogram dose that I've mentioned. Um, ketamine tends to have its onset in about 30 to 60 seconds. Um, although the endpoint can be difficult to judge, um, because with the dissociative anesthesia, um, the patient's eyes often remain open, so it's not like the other agents that I'm going to go on and talk about. Um, it lasts probably around about sort of 10 to 20 minutes. Um, recovery afterwards can be slow, so it's a gradual offset. Um, and I suppose the, one of the main concerns with recovery is emergence phenomenon, where you can get delirium, vivid dreams and hallucinations. Um, and the risk of this emergence phenomenon can be reduced by co-administration with a benzodiazepine. So this emergence phenomenon is probably one of the reasons ketamine is less popular in adult anesthesia than it is in children. Um, it's probably just as uh, frequent an occurrence in children, um, but obviously the children can't tell us about it, so it's less recognised. Um, going on to look at propofol, um, propofol, propofol is an alkyl phenyl derivative um, which causes hypnotic effects um, by facilitating inhibitory neurotransmission um, mediated by GABA. Um, it's available in a 0.51% or 2% lipid emulsion um, and the most common um, one used is a 1% 10 milligram per mil solution for induction of anesthesia. Uh, the normal intubating dose in a hemodynamically stable child is 2.5 to 4 milligrams per kilogram. But as we've mentioned, the induction dose should be reduced significantly in a hemodynamically unstable child. Um, it has an onset in about 30 seconds, um, lasts about 10 minutes, and unlike ketamine, it has quite a quick, uh, rapid recovery um, after administration of either a bolus or uh, an infusion. So uh, thiopentone is a thiobarbiturate um, which causes hypnosis um, through a number of mechanisms. It inhibits acetylcholine which is an excitatory neurotransmitter. It facilitates GABA, an inhibitory neurotransmitter, and inhibits the reticular activating system. It comes as a, a powder to be reconstituted in 500 milligram vials um, which are stable at room temperature. Um, to reconstitute it, you add 20 mils of water to the vial to make a 2.5% solution, or 25 milligrams per mil. Um, and once reconstituted, it's stable at room temperature for 48 hours. Um, the normal intubating dose in a neonate is 2 milligrams per kilogram, and for infants and older children, 4 milligrams per kilogram. And as we've mentioned with the other two drugs, the dose should be reduced in hemodynamically unstable children. Um, thiopentone has a very reliable onset time and well-defined endpoints um, acting in about 30 seconds. Um, the duration of action is anywhere from 5 to 15 minutes and again there's quite rapid recovery um, after a bolus dose um, due to redistribution. However, um, after repeat bolus doses or um, an infusion, recovery is delayed, unlike propofol. So um, looking at their effects on other systems. 
So looking at the airway effects, um, both ketamine and thiopentone will preserve the airway reflexes, probably more so in ketamine, um, making it useful um, from a procedural sedation point of view where you're not going to put an airway in. Um, ketamine will also cause increased um, salivation, so this in itself can cause obstruction in the airway, particularly in smaller patients. On the other hand, um, propofol causes good suppression of the airway reflexes, um, which facilitates insertion of a laryngeal mask. So going on to look at the respiratory effects of the different drugs. So ketamine tends to preserve respiration. Um, there's really only a couple of children I can think of where I've given them ketamine and they've had an apnea and they've been pretty clapped out. Um, so this makes the drug particularly useful for procedural sedation where you're not going to put a laryngeal mask or endotracheal tube in because the children most of the time will continue breathing adequately after a good dose of ketamine. Um, on the other hand, um, both propofol and thiopentone, um, apnea is fairly common after the administration um, for a short period of time before respiration will come back again. Um, looking at their effects on the lower airways, um, ketamine has the advantageous property of causing bronchodilatation um, and for this reason it's the ideal drug to be used in Stannis asthmaticus and we'd often use ketamine in it as a continuous infusion in the paediatric intensive care unit um, when dealing with children with asthma for that very property. Um, thiopentone tends to have the opposite effect in asthmatics and can cause bronchospasm um, due to the release of histamine, so it's better avoided in asthmatics. Um, going on to look at the cardiovascular effects, um, this is one of ketamine's key advantages. It's a relatively cardio-stable induction agent, and it works to increase the heart rate, increases the blood pressure, and increases the cardiac output in a stable child. And it does this by increasing the sympathetic tone um, by blocking noradrenaline uptake by the sympathetic nerve endings. On the other hand, um, both propofol and thiopentone tend to cause a reduction in blood pressure and a reduction in cardiac output. Um, thiopentone will co normally cause um, slight elevation in the heart rate, whereas propofol can cause both bradycardia and tachycardia. With propofol, the cardiovascular effects occur as a result of uh, vasodilatation. And with thiopentone um, are partially caused by vasodilatation, but thiopentone also reduces the contractility of the heart. And it's the negative effects um, on the cardiovascular system caused by propofol and thiopentone which limit their use in the critically ill child. Okay, so going on to look at the neurological effects, um, ketamine tends to cause increased cerebral blood flow, increased cerebral metabolic rate, increased cerebral oxygen demand, and increased intracranial pressure and as a result um, maintain cerebral perfusion pressure um, because as, although the intracranial pressure goes up um, so does the blood pressure. Um, propofol and thiopentone um, tend to have the opposite effects. Um, both they cause reduced cerebral blood flow, reduced cerebral metabolic rate, reduced cerebral oxygen demand, reduced intracranial pressure um, Although they reduce intracranial pressure, because they also tend to cause hypotension, generally reduce cerebral perfusion pressure. However, in the intensive care unit, um, the drop in blood pressure that's caused by thiopentone can be um, offset with a noradrenaline infusion. 
allowing a continuous infusion of thiopentone to be used to help control refractory high intracranial pressure in children following traumatic brain injury. Um, looking at the other neurological effects of these drugs, um, ketamine has analgesic effects, um, where the other two agents, propofol and thiopentone, don't have any, any analgesic effects. So this is particularly important if the patient's having a painful procedure done. Um, you need to be aware that propofol and thiopentone won't provide any pain relief, whereas ketamine does have some analgesic properties. The other um, useful property ketamine has over the other two is it has local anaesthetic effects as well, meaning it can be added into epidurals. All three of the agents have anti-epileptic effects. Um, propofol and thiopentone are quite useful um, for the induction agent when you're intubating a patient with status epilepticus, um, and thiopentone is the preferred agent um, as per the APLS guidelines. Um, ketamine is useful for refractory status epilepticus um, in the intensive care unit when other agents have failed, um, although generally isn't used for the intubation of uh, children with status epilepticus. Um, going on to look at the gastrointestinal effects, um, ketamine is associated with um, post-operative nausea and vomiting, um, whereas propofol is generally an antiemetic. Um, what is important to note with thiopentone is that it does reduce splenic blood flow and also blood flow to the kidneys. Um, this is more of a problem when thiopentone has been used as a continuous infusion in the intensive care unit, being aware that your child is slightly increased risk of NEC because there's less blood flow to the gut and also um, renal disease because of less blood flow to the kidneys. Going on to look at the contraindications, so um, obvious contraindication to ketamine is an allergy to it um, because it can cause increased blood pressure. If your patient uh, is extremely hypertensive, it's probably contraindicated as well um, and also in ischemic heart disease um, due to its cardiovascular effects. Um, looking at propofol, um, obviously again if you're allergic to um, propofol, you should avoid it. Um, and due to its constitution, if you're allergic to eggs, soya bean or soy, um, again, it should be avoided. Um, probably the biggest contraindication to um, both propofol and thiopentone is cardiovascular instability. So if your child is highly likely to decompensate on induction, um, propofol and thiopentone will probably push them over the edge. So it should be avoided in a cardiovascularly or potentially cardiovascularly unstable patient. Um, other contraindications to thiopentone, obviously if you're allergic to uh, barbiturates, um, if you've got porphyria, um, acute severe asthma or myotonic dystrophy. Um, going on to other information about the drugs, um, looking at ketamine, it's important to note that ketamine um, can cause increased intraocular pressure, um, so it should be avoided if you know your patient has this or they have a penetrating eye injury. And another useful um, route that ketamine can be given um, is intramuscular in an emergency. Um, it's generally given in a slightly higher dose of about four milligrams per kilogram, um, but still acts reasonably quickly. Um, propofol and thiopentone can um, both cause pain on injection. Um, thiopentone has quite an alkaline pH, so extravasation of it um, tends to cause tissue necrosis and um, arterial injection 
is highly likely to cause thrombosis and then ischemia. So the point for this is don't give thiopentone into a cannula that you're not sure is in a vein or that could potentially be in an artery. So for me, it's generally a cannula I've put in myself um, or I've seen somebody put it in, I'm happy it's, it's a good cannula. Um, the other thing probably to say with thiopentone is don't mix it with uh, succimethonium um, because the increased pH will deactivate the succimethonium. Um, final thing to say about propofol is it's routinely used in adults um, in intensive care units for sedation due to its beneficial properties um, of quick recovery when it's turned off. Um, Unfortunately, we can't use it for this property in children in paediatric intensive care um, due to the risk of propofol infusion syndrome. Okay, so going on to look at some of the other induction agents. So uh, like uh, ketamine, Atomidate is a relatively cardiac stable induction agent. Um, however, its use uh, is associated with increased mortality in critically ill patients it causes suppression of the adrenocortical axis um, and therefore we can't recommend it um, as an induction agent. Uh, fentanyl, which is a synthetic opioid, um, although not truly an induction agent, um, when given in a high dose of roughly three to five mics per kilo, whereas a normal analgesic dose is one mic per kilo, um, provides quite a smooth induction agent, um, which is relatively cardiac stable. Um, and the main places fentanyl tends to be used as an induction agent is in neonatal units and uh, during cardiac anaesthesia. Um, as I said, fentanyl is relatively well tolerated from a cardi cardiovascular point of view, and its main side effect is chest wall rigidity, um, which is particularly problematic in neonates. Um, this side effect can be avoided um, by giving the drugs slowly, and it's recommended that it's given over roughly about two minutes. Um, particularly important when you're doing this in small babies, um, you need to factor in your dead space when doing this. So importantly, when you start to give the fentanyl, um, all you'll be doing is filling the dead space off the connector and the cannula. Um, and then when you start to flush the drug, um, you'll, you're still actually giving the fentanyl that's in the dead space. Um, and quite often in particularly small neonates, the dose of fentanyl that you've drawn up is less than the dead space. So the whole time you're given the fentanyl, all it will be doing is going into the dead space. People flush it in really slowly over two minutes, but the patient hasn't got it yet. And then when they give the flush, they flush it quickly. Um, and all of a sudden the patient gets the dose at once and you get chest wall rigidity. So you need to factor in your dead space when you're given the drug. Um, should chest wall rigidity occur, the best treatment is to give a fast-acting muscle relaxant, which you should be doing anyway. Um, the other place fentanyl is used is it's often administered along with another induction agent um, due to its uh, useful property of blocking the sympathetic response to laryngoscopy, um, and normally in a dose of one mic per kilo for this purpose. Um, morphine I've mentioned because I know that some neonatal units use this um, as their induction agent um, and this practice we really can't support um, due to the unfavourable pharmacokinetic properties of morphine. Um, so morphine has a really slow onset. Um, it's going to take at least 10 minutes to have 
any hypnotic effect and it has a long duration of action. We're normally giving morphine uh, four, to, four to six times a day. Um, so you can expect the morphine to last um, four to six hours when it's given. So this is really the opposite of what an induction agent should do. An induction agent should act quickly and go away quickly, whereas with morphine it acts slowly and lasts for a long time. Um, it also produces poor levels of hypnosis, and produces more hypotension than with fentanyl due to its histamine release. And when you consider there's actually better um, induction agents with less side effects that will work in a better way, um, we really can't support morphine um, for use as this purpose. Um, midazolam, again, not necessarily a true induction agent, um, but is often co-administered with another induction agent um, or used for pre-medication because it causes amnesia and angiolytic properties. Um, you can use it as a higher dose um, as the sole induction agent, um, but it has a slightly slower onset and longer duration of action than the three um, preferred induction agents for use in children. Um, and it's highly likely to cause um, cardiovascular instability as well in a critically ill child. So that was a quick run through the common induction agents, um, their advantages and disadvantages. And this is particularly more important um, when you've got an elective intubation in a well child, because you've got more of a choice and you can pick and choose from the agents that I've mentioned, um, depending on their individual properties. But when it comes to intubating the critically ill child, um, you really don't have much of a choice. Your choice of induction agent is determined by its cardiovascular stability um, because the critically ill child is highly likely to decompensate on induction of anaesthesia. So you need to pick the agent that's going to make that process as smooth as possible um, by having the minimal effects on the cardiovascular system. And for this reason, um, ketamine is the preferred induction agent for the intubation of the critically ill child. Um, it is important to note that I've told you that in a well child, ketamine normally causes hypertension and tachycardia due to its effects on the sympathetic nervous system. The critically ill shock child isn't going to have the same effects. Um, they've already exhausted all their own endogenous catecholamines. So they are likely to react with hypotension on administration of ketamine. However, that effect is hopefully going to be less than with use of some of the other induction agents, such as propofol and thiopentum. Um, so how does this affect what you do? Well, I told you the normal induction dose of ketamine was 1 to 2 milligrams per kilogram in a hemodynamically stable child. So when you've got a shock child, you need to reduce this dose. So for a hemodynamically stable child, I'm starting normally about one milligram per kilogram because you can always give more, but you can't take it away. And in the shock child, I'll drop this down to 0.5 milligrams per kilogram. Um, importantly, you need to allow more time for the drug to work. This is going to take longer to get from the cannula to the patient's brain because of the impaired circulation time. So if you don't wait long enough, and give another dose, um, it's all going to hit at once and it's likely to have um, undesirable cardiovascular effects. Another tip I'll give you is that I've already mentioned ketamine comes in three preparations, 10 milligrams per mil, 50 milligrams per mil 
and 100 milligrams per mil. So for intravenous uh, administration, I would recommend that you always use the 10 milligrams per mil um, solution, and that's for two reasons. Um, it's much easier to calculate the dose you need to give if your drug comes in a multiple of 10, for example, 10 milligrams per mil. So you're going to have less risk of drug errors. Um, and it's important you always use the preparation the same way. So if sometimes you're using 10 milligrams per mil, other times 50 milligrams per mil, you're more at risk of making an error. So if you only have the 50 milligrams per mil um, on a certain occasion, I would recommend you dilute it down to 10 milligrams per mil so that you're always administering 10 milligrams per mil strength. The second reason for using this concentration is that in small neonates, you're going to need this dilute to drop the small volume you need um, accurately. Another important point I want to clarify is the use of ketamine in patients with traumatic brain injury and so at increased risk of intracranial pressure. Um, so traditionally, this was a contraindication to using ketamine um, because there was concerns that um, ketamine can cause increased intracranial pressure, so could cause harm. Um, and for years, um, drugs like thiopentone were given because they reduce intracranial pressure, so were meant to um, infer a benefit. Um, the problem with this is that although thiopentone reduces intracranial pressure, it also has a significant effect on the cardiovascular patient, particularly a sick trauma patient, uh, given a dose of thiopentone, is likely to drop their blood pressure. And in so, by dropping their blood pressure, um, the cerebral perfusion pressure to the brain will drop, even though intracranial pressure is reduced. On the other hand, um, by giving ketamine, um, although it may cause a slight elevation in intracranial pressure, um, and the studies showing this um, were conducted some time ago, and the evidence is actually fairly weak that it does elevate intracranial pressure, and there has never been any association of harm caused by this slight elevation in intracranial pressure. But the, the big advantage of ketamine is that it is generally cardiovascular stable, so shouldn't produce that same reduction in blood pressure. And so, although um, intracranial pressure will elevate slightly, um, cerebral perfusion pressure is generally maintained and doesn't drop like it does with the administration of propofol or thiopentone. So for me, um, I'm using ketamine routinely in my traumatic brain injury patients, and I would never think of using propofol or thiopentone because I'm much more interested in preserving the cerebral perfusion pressure rather than worrying about small changes in intracranial pressure. Obviously, when it comes to ongoing boluses after intubation or sedation in the intensive care unit, then I would probably stay away from ketamine and use other agents for this purpose. But for that initial intubation, where the patient's likely to decompensate because they're a trauma patient, they may be shocked. The advantages of ketamine um, outweigh any disadvantages for me. So I'm using ketamine um, pretty much for all my intubations in critically ill children. Um, I suppose the one exception is the child in status epilepticus, um, where I would generally use thiopentone. Um, as the first line agent. Um, you could use propofol, it will do equally a good a job as thiopentone, um, but as current APLS um, guidelines recommend thiopentone, it's probably best to stick to this for the purpose of status epilepticus. 
Um, I suppose the one situation where I probably wouldn't use thiopentone is the patient in Stannis epilepticus who is also hemodynamically unstable. Um, in this situation, I'd use ketamine for induction of anesthesia and then worry about treating the seizure um, after the airway has been secured. Okay, so now I want to go on and talk about the muscle relaxants. So the muscle relaxants can be divided up into two types, um, depolarizing and non-depolarizing, based on their mechanism of action. Um, and to explain how they work, you need to have a basic knowledge of how transmission occurs at the neuromuscular junction. So when an action potential arrives at the nerve ending, it causes release of acetylcholine into the synaptic cleft, which is the gap between the nerve and the muscle fibre. Um, and as this acetylcholine molecule then transverses across the synaptic cleft and binds to the postsynaptic membrane, which then causes depolarization and muscle contraction. The acetylcholine molecule is then broken down by the enzyme acetylcholine esterase, which is present in the synaptic cleft. So succimethonium is really the only depolarizing muscle relaxant um, used routinely today. And it, as a chemical structure, really consists of two molecules of acetylcholine joined together. And it works by mimicking the action of acetylcholine in the synaptic cleft, where it binds to the postsynaptic acetylcholine receptors and causes depolarization of the muscle fiber. Um, unlike acetylcholine, it's not broken down by the enzyme acetylcholine esterase, which is present in the synaptic cleft, and it's actually metabolized by um, plasma choline esterase um, present in the blood. As a result of this, the breakdown process is slower, and so depolarization is prolonged, leading to a period of muscle relaxation after the initial contraction caused by the binding the succimethonium to the postsynaptic membrane receptors and this explains why initially you get some fasciculations when succimethonium is given immediately followed by a period of muscle relaxation. Um, as their name suggests the non-depolarizing muscle relaxants they don't cause depolarization of the muscle um, and they work by um, competing competitively with acetylcholine for the postsynaptic acetylcholine receptors and by binding to them, they prevent acetylcholine from binding the receptors and therefore causing depolarization and contraction of the muscle fiber. And that's how they cause muscle relaxation. The um, non-depolarizing muscle relaxants can be further divided into two groups. There's the aminosteroidals, such as rocuronium, vacuronium, and pancuronium. And there's the benzoquinolinemes, um, which are atracurium, cisatracurium and mevacurium and it's useful to have this divide when you're looking at the properties and side effects. So now what I want to do is I want to go on and look at uh, succimethonium and three of the most common non-depolarizing muscle relaxants, rocuronium, vacuronium and atracurium and compare them. So starting off with succimethonium, as we've already mentioned, succimethonium is a depolarizing muscle relaxant and its primary use is in rapid sequence induction. Um, it comes as a clear colorless solution in 50 milligrams per mil in two milampules and should be stored in the refrigerator at four degrees C. Um, once it's removed from the fridge, 
it's stable at room temperature for 14 days. Um, it's given in a normal intubating dose of 2 mg per kilogram for those less than one year and 1 mg per kilogram above one year. Um, it's the fastest acting of all the muscle relaxants, um, providing intubation conditions after about 30 to 45 seconds and has the shortest duration of action of 3 to 5 minutes. Um, Rocuronium um, is a non-depolarizing aminosteroidal muscle relaxant um, and it can be used for rapid sequence induction, elective intubation and also for maintenance of paralysis. Um, it comes in a solution of 10 milligrams per mil in both 5 mil or 10 mil vials. Like succinamethonium, it should be stored in the refrigerator, but um, can last for slightly longer out of the fridge. Um, it's stable at room temperature for three months. Um, for elective intubations, it's given in a dose of 0.6 milligrams per kilogram, um, where you can expect it to work and provide intubating conditions um, somewhere between one to two minutes of time. Um, in rapid sequence, it can be given in a bigger dose, um, 1 to 1.2 milligrams per kilogram, where you can expect intubating conditions after 45 to 60 seconds. Um, it is a much longer duration of action, uh, 30 to 40 minutes. Vacuronium is another um, aminosteroidal, non-depolarizing muscle relaxant, um, used for elective intubation and maintenance of paralysis. Um, I haven't mentioned rapid sequence induction because it has a much slower onset of action, taking two to three minutes um, to act. Um, it provides a duration of about 30 minutes um, when given in a dose of 0.1 milligrams per kilogram. Um, the main difference between it and the other ones we're going to mention that it comes as a powder um, in 10 milligram vials that we needs to be reconstituted uh, before being used. Um, but does have the advantage that it's stable at room temperature. Um, Atricurium um, is a benzoquinolinium um, non-depolarizing muscle relaxant, um, which is used again for elective intubation and maintenance of paralysis. Um, again, not suitable for rapid sequence induction because it takes two to three minutes to have an effect um, and lasts slightly shorter than the other two at about 20 to 30 minutes. Um, it's given in a dose of 0.5 milligrams per kilogram. Um, it comes in 10 milligram per mil vials uh, in 2.5, 5 and 25 mils. Um, again, it should be stored in the fridge, um, but once removed from the fridge, is stable at room temperature for 14 days. So going on to look at the side effects of these four reagents, um, succinamethonium by far, has the most side effects. Um, probably the most relevant um, one is bradycardia. So this occurs most frequently in neonates or following administration of a second dose of succinamethonium. So it's important that you have some atropine to hand if you're using succinamethonium. Um, because it works by causing initial stimulation of the muscle followed by relaxation, um, the fasciculations can cause some myalgia um, following its use. Um, the other main side effect is hyperkalemia and in a generally healthy ambulant person the potassium will go up by about 0.5 millimoles per litre following a dose of succinamethonium. Um, however if the patient is already hyperkalemic 
um, or as renal failure, um, this increase in potassium can obviously be significant. Um, or if the patient is particularly um, immobile or has um, an underlying muscle problem due to upregulation of the receptors, um, you can get much more release of um, potassium uh, and fatal hyperkalemia has occurred following a single dose of succimethonium. Um, succimethonium does increase intraocular pressure, so it should be used with caution in penetrating eye injuries. Um, it increases intracranial pressure and also intragastric pressure, although it does increase the um, upper esophageal sphincter tone, um, offsetting some of this rise in intragastric pressure. Like all the drugs, there is risk of anaphylaxis. Um, there's succinothonium apnea, where instead of lasting the three to five minutes, the succinothonium can last for a period of hours in patients at risk of this condition. And also there's a risk of malignant hyperthermia. Um, the rest of the agents have much lower um, side effects. They all have anaphylaxis down as a risk in allergy. Um, Brocuronium tends to cause um, slight elevation of the heart rate due to uh, its mild vagolytic effects, but this can be slightly advantageous. Um, as I said, bradycardia is fairly common during intubation. Um, Vecuronium is relatively stable and has um, minimal cardiovascular effects. Um, I suppose the main additional side effect to anaphylaxis with atracurium is histamine release and this can cause bronchospasm, hypotension, flushing and rash um, so it should generally be avoided in asthmatics. So when you know the side effects the contraindications then make sense so with uh, succinothonium it's obviously if you're allergic to succinothonium you shouldn't give it. If there's a family history of or personal history of succinapnea it shouldn't be given likewise with a history of malignant hyperthermia. Um, if your patient's got a high potassium level because it will elevate the potassium, it shouldn't be given. Or if your patient has burns greater than 10% body surface area or spinal cord injury after the first 24 hours, um, again, succinthonium shouldn't be given. Again, with significant muscle trauma or prolonged immobilization or a history of muscle disease, you can get significantly high um, levels of potassium released following a single dose. So succinosonium should be avoided. With the other three um, non-depolarizing muscle relaxants, um, there's relatively few contraindications. Um, certainly an allergy to the specific drug, um, it should be avoided. And with atracurium, um, because it causes histamine release, it should be avoided in asthmatics because it can make bronchospasm worse. Um, looking at uh, reversibility with um, Sugamidex, um, succimethodium and atracurium can't be reversed, but the aminosteroidals can, uh, rocuronium and vacuronium. Just a few more comments about the individual drugs. So as we already mentioned, succimethodium is the fastest acting agent. Um, it can also be given intramuscularly in an emergency when intravenous access isn't available. Um, it's given in a slightly higher dose of four milligrams per kilogram up to a maximum dose of 150 milligrams and you can get intubating conditions between two to three minutes later. Um, as we've already mentioned it's important not to mix succinothonium with uh, thiopentone because the alkaline pH of thiopentone will inactivate the succinothonium. 
Um, under rocky uranium, it's important to note that um, by giving the RSI the, the bigger dose of rocky uranium, you can get intubating conditions which are similar to those achieved with succinamethonium in almost the same time, but without a significant number of the side effects that succinamethonium causes. And also, there's much less contraindications to its use. Um, a useful feature of atracurium is that it is um, metabolised by Hoffman elimination, um, which means you don't need to reduce the dose in liver or renal impairment. Um, and this is much more important when the muscle relaxant is given by continuous infusion in the intensive care unit um, rather than after a single bolus dose. I want to go on and talk about a few of the other muscle relaxants. Um, so cisatracurium is actually one of the isomers of atracurium, um, atracurium being made up of 10 isomers. And the isomer that's used for um, cisatracurium is actually one of the more potent isomers found in atracurium. Um, and as a result, it needs to be given in a lower dose, as typically given in a dose of 0.15 milligrams per kilogram. Cisatracurium also shares the advantageous property of Hoffman elimination with atracurium. However, it doesn't share one of atracurium's big side effects, which is histamine release. So cisatracurium doesn't cause histamine release. Um, cisatracurium has a slower onset of action, taking about three to four minutes to work, uh, and lasts slightly longer than atracurium in about 30 to 40 minutes at a time. Um, it's also more expensive than atracurium. Um, Mivacurium is given in a dose of 0.15 to 0.2 milligrams per kilogram. Um, it's a similar onset of action to atracurium, but has a shorter duration of action, um, lasting about uh, 15 minutes. Um, when it's used, histamine release is relatively common though. Um, pancuronium is a minor steroidal non-depolarizing muscle relaxant, um, which is normally given in a dose of 0.1 milligrams per kilogram. Um, it also has a slow onset of action in about three to five minutes and has a much longer duration of action than any of the other muscle relaxants we've mentioned. Um, and you can expect um, paralysis for 40 to 60 minutes following a single bolus. Um, following administration, it does tend to cause tachycardia and hypertension due to its sympathomimetic properties. So now I want to go on and talk a little bit about um, muscle relaxant reversal. So all the non-depolarizing muscle relaxants that we've mentioned can be reversed using anticholine esterases such as neostigmine. And these are often given in combination with either atropine or glycopyromium to minimize the muscarinic side effects. So the anticholine esterases work by inhibiting the enzyme acetylcholine esterase in the neuromuscular junction. So by inhibiting this enzyme from breaking down um, acetylcholine, they increase the amount of acetylcholine present in the synaptic cleft, meaning there's more acetylcholine molecules uh, available to compete with the muscle relaxant um, for position on the postsynaptic acetylcholine receptors. So while anticholine esterases are used routinely to reverse the effect of muscle relaxants at the end of a case in the operating theater, 
they're not so helpful in the setting of um, field intubation because they generally aren't given until at least 15 to 20 minutes after administration of the muscle relaxant. So they're not useful in that setting where you've given the muscle relaxants, can't intubate the child, and you want to reverse things immediately. I have, however, mentioned them because I think I need to cover them for completeness because when we talk about reversing muscle relaxants in that setting of field intubation, this is what most people think we're talking about, and it's not. There's actually another class of drug um, more recently discovered called Sugamidex, that is the drug we're talking about for the immediate reversal of certain types of non-depolarizing muscle relaxants immediately after they've been given. So Sugamidex works in a slightly different way. It's a selective relaxant binding agent and it works by encapsulating certain groups of muscle relaxants. So only the aminosteroidal group of non-depolarizing muscle relaxants. So once the aminosteroidal group uh, muscle relaxant molecules have been encapsulated by the sugamidex, they can't exert their effect and they are then excreted by the kidneys. So if you give a dose of 16 milligrams per kilogram of sugamidex immediately following the administration of aminosteroidal neuromuscular blocking agent, so that's importantly either rocuronium, vecuronium or pancuronium, you can expect recovery um, within one to three minutes. And it's important to mention that Sugamidex will have absolutely no effect on the benzoquinoliniums. So that's antracurium, cisantracurium, or mivacurium. Okay, so that's a quick run through the different muscle relaxants, divided up into depolarizing and non-depolarizing, and then the non-depolarizing into the aminosteroidals and the benzoquinoliniums. So when it comes to intubating the critically ill child, um, like with the induction agents, um, you don't have a bigger choice as you think. And the drug that you choose as your muscle relaxant, um, the biggest determining factor here is the onset of action. So although it's rare we would perform a classical rapid sequence induction in the critically ill child, you still want your muscle relaxant to work as quickly as possible. Um, and that's because while you're waiting for the muscle relaxant to work, we'd normally provide face mask ventilation to the child during the apnea period while you're waiting for the muscle relaxant to take effect prior to intubation. And that face mask ventilation isn't without complication. There's obviously risk of failed or inadequate mask ventilation leading to hypoxia. Um, it can also cause gastric distension, impairing ventilation and increasing the risk of aspiration. And also while you're spending time bagging the patient, you're not doing all the other jobs you need to be doing with the child. So it makes sense that you choose a faster acting muscle relaxant so you limit that period of mask ventilation. And for that reason, there's really only two drugs that are appropriate for use in intubation of the critically ill child, and that's uh, succimethonium and an RSI dose of rocuronium, because they're the only two agents that provide good intubating conditions in less than one minute. And all the other muscle relaxants that I've told you about take at least two minutes to provide similar intubating conditions. 
So if you don't want to bag your child for an extra minute, at least, um, you're limited to a choice of either succinethonium and rocuronium. Um, the next thing to consider is that when you look at the side effect and contraindications to succinethonium and compare them to rocuronium, and when you consider that uh, rocuronium is only 15 seconds slower in producing good intubating conditions than um, succinethonium, um, for this reason, I would recommend using rocuronium as the muscle relaxant of choice when intubating a critically ill child. I would also recommend using a dose of one milligram per kilogram for ease of calculation, um, and also because uh, a dose of 1.2 milligrams per kilogram doesn't provide faster intubating conditions than a dose of one milligram per kilogram. But the one milligram per kilogram dose is gonna be much easier to calculate it's going to be 0.1 mils per kilo of the 10 milligram per mil solution. Um, also, because we've already mentioned with ketamine, we're normally starting in a dose of one milligram per kilogram, and ketamine's also 10 milligrams per mil is the, the strength I recommend using. The volume that you're drawing up for both your ketamine and your rocuronium is normally the same. So again, um, another good reason to use one milligram per kilogram of rocuronium. Um, is there any situations where I would recommend using succinethonium um, over rocuronium? Um, and probably the couple of situations where I would recommend it are, for example, in neonates, they would intubate the babies for respiratory distress syndrome, where they often use an insure technique. So intubation, surfactant, and extubation. So they want to extubate the baby immediately after the procedure. So in this situation, succinethonium is a better choice because its on duration of action is going to be three to five minutes rather than 30 to 40 minutes with rocuronium. But obviously recognising that there's a high risk of bradycardia when using succinethonium in neonates and making sure you have some atropine prepared. The other situation where you might want to use um, succinethonium in preference to rocuronium is where the patient may have a potentially difficult airway or where the, an intubation has to be carried out without um, senior support on site. Um, in this situation, the shorter duration of action of succinethonium um, may outweigh any of its side effects. Okay, so the final class of medications that I want to talk about is the rescue medications. Um, so these are the drugs that you give to deal with the common complications caused by the process of intubation or the administration of the induction agents. And these are primarily bradycardia and hypotension. So I'm gonna deal with bradycardia first. So the actual process of laryngoscopy um, can cause bradycardia by itself. Um, if the intubation is prolonged and there's hypoxia, that can cause bradycardia through vaguely mediated methods. Um, also, we've mentioned some of the drugs that you give, both the induction agents and the muscle relaxants can cause bradycardia. So this means bradycardia is a predictable side effect of intubation and you must be prepared to deal with it. 
So I would recommend you draw up atropine in advance for every intubation. Um, although it can be drawn up quickly in an emergency in about 30 to 60 seconds, that's a very long time to be watching a bradycardic child and it's much better to have it drawn up in advance. So the dose of atropine to treat uh, vaguely mediated bradycardia is 20 micrograms per kilogram up to a maximum dose of 600 micrograms. Sometimes in high-risk patients where you think there's a high risk they're going to develop a bradycardia, prevention is felt to be better than cure and you may want to give the atropine prophylactically on induction so to try and prevent bradycardia before it recurs. Um, in this situation the dose is the same, it's 20 mics per kilo up to a maximum dose of 600 micrograms um, with one exception and that is that in uh, patients older than one month a minimum dose of 100 micrograms is used for atropine um, and that's because there's concerns that the smaller doses are associated with paradoxical bradycardia. Um, so atropine comes in a variety of forms. Um, it comes in one mil ampules uh, containing 600 mics, so 600 mics per mil. Um, or it can come in a pre-filled syringe of various concentrations and sizes from 100 mics per mil, 200 mics per mil or 300 mics per mil. Um, and as we've mentioned before, for ease of calculation, you want to do this the same way every time. And as we've mentioned, um, multiples of 10 or 100 are much easier for working out the dose rather than um, funny concentrations like 200 mics per mil or 300 mics per mil or 600 mics per mil. Um, so with this in mind, I would recommend you always give atropine in a dose of 100 mics per mil. Um, if you've got a pre-filled syringe of this concentration, great, use it. Um, if not, what I'd recommend you do is you take the uh, one mil ampule containing 600 micrograms and dilute it with five mils of 0.9% saline. So you've got a solution now, six mils containing 600 micrograms, which is 100 micrograms per mil. So as we've already mentioned, all the induction agents have the potential to cause cardiovascular collapse in the critically ill child. And even with your best efforts of trying to optimise the child prior to the induction of anaesthesia and by limiting the dose of the induction agent and choosing a cardiostable agent, you can't always prevent hypotension from occurring. So you need to have a plan to treat it when it occurs. And it's normally managed in a combination of fluid boluses and push dose pressors. And I'll talk about the fluid boluses first. So fluid boluses in children are normally given in aliquots of 10 to 20 mils per kilo and they're normally drawn up in a large volume syringe and pushed in by hand. Um, and this significantly reduces the time to administration. It does however take some time to fill the syringes from the bag. So if you think your child is at high risk of developing hypotension on induction, it makes sense to have the syringes already filled with the fluid of your choice, which is normally normal saline, um, prior to inducing anaesthesia. Um, and for the situations where you haven't anticipated um, hypotension and it occurs, it's important that you have a bag of appropriate fluids available and a bag spike 
um, because this means you can rapidly fill the syringes and give the bolus. So as we've already mentioned, um, all the induction agents can cause hypotension and it's normally through a combination of vasodilatation and a direct depressant effect on the contractility of the heart. Um, and while fluids will be helpful to deal with some of this, in other situations you actually need push dose pressors to bring the blood pressure back up. So what do I mean by push dose pressors? Well normally vasoactive drugs are given in concentrated infusions via a central line. In contrast, uh, push dose pressors are titrated by administering small aliquots from a dilute vasoactive drug syringe by bolus injection and this can be via a peripheral line. And due to the speed that this can be initiated, um, push dose pressors are generally used in two main situations. The crashing peri-arrest patient, where you don't have time to start a vasoactive drug infusion. It would be too long and the patient would deteriorate too quickly. Or the other situation, which is the situation we're talking about, is where you expect the hypotension to be short-lived making a standard infusion unnecessary. And this is generally the hypotension caused by the induction agent on induction of anesthesia. So there's a whole range of drugs that you can use as push dose pressors. Um, we're focusing solely on the emergency intubation of the critically ill child here. And for this situation, adrenaline is by far the best and most effective agent. And most importantly, it's in the resuscitation crawler on every ward, so it's easy access to it. So how do you make up push dose adrenaline? Well, it's really simple. It's one tenth the strength of the dose of adrenaline you use in a cardiac arrest. So it's adrenaline one in a hundred thousand, whereas in a cardiac arrest you use one in ten thousand. So there's ten micrograms per mil in adrenaline one. In 100,000. So to make it up, all you do is you take one mil off the adrenaline, one in 10,000, that you would be using in a cardiac arrest, add nine mils of saline to it, so you've now got 10 mils containing adrenaline, one in 100,000, or 10 mics per mil. Um, so you give exactly the same volume that you would in a cardiac arrest, 0.1 mils per kilo up to a maximum dose of two mils. And in because you've already diluted it by 10, by giving the same volume as you would in a cardiac arrest, 0.1 mils per kilo, you're actually given a tenth of the dose. So you're only given one microgram per kilogram at a time. In an adult, the normal dose you would give um, is up to two mils of this solution or 20 micrograms. So that's why you don't exceed two mils. And how often can you give this? As often as you need to. So it's generally between every 30 seconds or 10 minutes. And certainly if you're needing to give this for a prolonged period of time, you should be thinking of converting it over to an infusion. Okay, I want to finish by talking a little bit about the post-intubation drugs. So following intubation, it should be remembered that the effects of the muscle relaxants will persist for longer than the induction agents. That says unless you've used succinothonium. So maintenance of sedation should be started as soon as possible um, to prevent the situation where the child is actually conscious but paralyzed. 
Um, on the situation where you expect the duration of intubation to be short, for example, you've only intubated the child for a procedure, or for example, following a status epilepticus, and you're planning to wake and extubate, to cover that period while you're waiting for the muscle relaxant to wear off and allow the child to wake, um, it's probably best done by giving further boluses of the induction agent as required. However, most of the times when we're intubating a critically ill child, um, they're going to need a trip to intensive care. So sedation is going to be needed for a longer period. And in this situation, you're much better to start a continuous infusion of sedation. So I'm going to tell you my approach to sedation following intubation. It's important to note that this varies widely. The doses and the drugs used vary widely. So this is just one approach. But you should use whatever approach is used locally. So most children following intubation, I'm starting on morphine as my um, maintenance of sedation. Um, and in general, I'm making up the child's weight in kilograms of morphine in 50 mils of 0.9% saline. So if I've got a 18 kilo child, I'm making up 18 milligrams of morphine in 50 mils for a 40 kilo child, it's 40 milligrams of morphine in 50 mils. And if I start that infusion at one mil an hour, I'm going to be given 20 micrograms per kilogram per hour. And I would normally start at one mil an hour and titrate to effect. And the normal range for a morphine infusion is somewhere between about 10 and 60 micrograms per kilogram, um, or 0.5 to 3 mils if you've made the infusion up the way I'm telling you. Um, and in general, we'd use a lower dose in neonates, maybe up to about 20 or 30 micrograms per kilogram per hour at most, with the higher doses of up to 60 being for older children. Um, with any of the infusions, you do need to give a loading dose um, rather than just starting the child on the maintenance dose. Um, with the morphine, your loading dose varies somewhere between about 20 and 100 micrograms per kilogram or 1 to 5 mils of the reconstituted infusion, if you're making it up, as I've told you. Um, and how much of that you give depends on um, their child's requirement and also their hemodynamic status. Um, what I tend to do is give the dose in 1 to 2 mil aliquots of 20 to 40 micrograms at a time and titrate that to effect. So in infants less than three months, um, I normally use morphine alone for sedation um, because the addition of midazolam is not only unnecessary, but it's associated with frequent hypotension, over sedation, and then withdrawal when you're stopping the sedation. However, in infants over about three months of age, you generally do require midazolam on top of the morphine to get um, adequate levels of sedation. So how do we make up a midazolam infusion? Um, it's normally five times the child's weight in milligrams of midazolam, made up to 50 mils with 0.9% saline. Um, so for example, you have an 18 kilo child, that's 90 milligrams in 50 mils of 0.9% saline. Um, again, starting at one mil an hour, will give you 0.1% milligrams per kilogram per hour and that's what I would normally start at and titrate it to effect. 
The range with the midazolam infusion is 0.6 to 2.4 mils an hour, which is 0.06 to 0.24 milligrams per kilogram per hour. And like with the morphine, it is important that you give a loading dose um, if you don't want the child to wake up between the effects of your induction agent and the continuous infusion taking effect. Um, how much do you give them? It's normally between about 50 and 100 mics per kilo um, of midazolam or 0.5 to 1 mils of the reconstituted solution provided you've made it up the way I've told you to make it. Um, and again, that depends on the patient's um, hemodynamic um, stability and also their requirement. Um, and I would suggest giving this in 0.5 mil or 50 microgram aliquots. So apart from local preference, um, the main reason to deviate away from what I've recommended, um, morphine alone in children less than three months, morphine and midazolam in children over three months, is an asthma. Um, in this situation, um, the morphine, due to its histamine release, can worsen bronchospasm. So I tend to avoid morphine in this group of patients. Um, and because ketamine uh, actually has bronchodilatory properties, um, I would substitute the morphine for a ketamine infusion and often combine the ketamine infusion with the midazolam infusion. Um, the other important thing to mention with sedation of critically ill children and um, particularly if you're used to working with adults, is that propofol infusions are contraindicated for sedation in intensive care um, due to risk of propofol infusion syndrome in children. So generally we're not using propofol. Um, looking at um, muscle relaxation, um, if you need ongoing um, paralysis, you can do this one of two ways. You can either give a bolus of muscle relaxant um, as and when they're needed, or you can start a continuous infusion. Um, I suppose one advantage of the bolus administration is that it allows you to assess the neurology um, and depth of sedation between the doses. And this is particularly important if you've got a child who's at risk of seizures, um, while the continuous infusion probably provides more stability. Um, if you do want to start a continuous infusion, you can really um, have your pick of the muscle relaxants that we've discussed. Um, I'm going to describe rocuronium because generally if you're using rocuronium for intubation, it makes sense that you start the same stuff again as a continuous infusion. So I generally make um, rocuronium infusions up neat. So it's just 500 milligrams and 50 mils neat or feel free to make up a smaller syringe of 10 milligrams per mil, um, depending on what you think you're gonna use. We generally make up 24 hours worth of an infusion. Um, so the starting dose for this is normally 0.5 milligrams per kilogram per hour. So if you're running rocuronium neat, that's 0.05 times the child's weight in kilograms, mils an hour, um, and then titrate that to effect. So for example, if you had an 18 kilo child, it's gonna be 0.9 mils an hour of a rocuronium infusion, 10 milligrams per mil. The range of that infusion is 0.3 to 1 milligrams per kilogram per hour. If you prefer um, just to work on bolus doses, 0.6 milligrams per kilogram um, at a time um, is about right for that.
Okay, to sum up then, I would recommend using ketamine and rocuronium for intubation of most critically ill children. Um, make sure you reduce the dose of ketamine for hemodynamically unstable patients. Although it is the most cardiac stable agent, it still will cause hypotension in the shock child. Um, make sure you've drawn up your rescue medication um, so it's available should you need it. And remember to start uh, post-intubation drugs promptly following intubation for maintenance of anesthesia.